Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Highly Functional. This is Brianne Showman, and I am joined today by mental health expert Danielle Snyder. I really wanted to get Danielle on here today to discuss the mental side of training and performance, especially surrounding the stories we tell ourselves and the fears we hold that keep us from performing at our top potential. Whether you are an athlete, a clinician, or a coach, I think you'll find this conversation with Danielle highly valuable. So let's tune in. Danielle, thank you for joining me today. How are you? I am doing okay. It is sunny and here in Portland, Oregon, so it's pretty exciting. How are you? I am doing well, thank you. Always a good day when it's sunny in Portland. Yeah. Actually, you know what? I think that it gets a bad rap. Like during the summer, it is sunny quite a bit. Have you guys been getting on to rain though? Um, so I actually lived in Bend up until the beginning of the pandemic. So I, I think that they did have a pretty rainy winter season, but I wasn't here. So, <laughs> I don't know. That works. <laughs> yeah. The best of both worlds. Right. Awesome. Well, I... I love your background. I was introduced to you through a colleague of yours, and I was excited to get you on here because of what you do when it comes to the mental side of not only training, but also of life. Um, So I'd love for you to introduce yourself and just what you do, how you got into all of this, and we'll kind of dive in from there. Sure. I have tried like for many years to find a succinct succinct way of saying this and I'm just not I've not found the perfect form so I just like to kind of lay it all out there and and hope that it fits together but um I so I guess it was like 12 years ago I graduated with my master's in social work and I um, started to do therapy so I'm a licensed clinical social worker um and I really dove into looking at people's mental health and how it impacts them. And, and something that I saw across the board is that no one is immune to mental health struggles. I think as a society, we often try to, with a lot of things, kind of separate ourselves from what we see as being scary or uh, as something that could happen to us. So like if someone, you know, gets cancer, like you try to find the cause of it or something bad happens to someone. Like we always like ask questions and we like dig in and we want to know like, how does that separate me from that? Because we're scared. And so I think mental health falls into that category of like, oh, well, that person's depressed because of this, this, and this, and that's never going to happen to me. When in reality, we're all vulnerable to these struggles because we're humans and life is hard. So as an athlete myself, um, I had been talking with my coach about specifically athletes and their wellness and the narrative surrounding their performance as well as like their belief system within themselves. And following this conversation that happened around like three years ago, I decided to look into programs that specifically um, looked at athletes' wellness and mental health. And so I started, um, I took this, completed this program and 
what they, I mentioned to you when we spoke briefly before is that athletes are actually considered a vulnerable population. And what that essentially means is that as a society, those of us who don't actually maybe work closely with athletes, see athletes as being super strong, super motivated, capable, competent, and confident because they prioritize their exercise. Oftentimes that is a um, kind of a, I'm not sure, like a mask of what's underneath. Just because someone is doing really well in athletics or just because someone is working out does not mean that they aren't struggling with their own doubt and lack of self-confidence. So I created this program called Inner Drive Athlete, where I help athletes look at their own narratives and vulnerabilities and overall wellness and how it impacts all areas of their life as well as their athletic performance. That is really cool. And it's really, it's something you don't think about, but once you say it, it makes so much sense that the athletes are the vulnerable population because we see the see them, especially at those higher levels of being these just amazing athletes, having it all together. Um, yes, we know behind the scenes, once you start hearing their stories, there's other stuff going on, obviously, um, drugs, alcohol, you name it. But for an athlete to like, do athletes tend to kind of almost like hit a rock bottom of some sort mentally in order to be willing to seek out help? Or do you find that they're more willing now, um, now that mental health is kind of a little bit more known of an area? I think it depends on the person. So it is, it is becoming more well spoken about. Like we, we are addressing it. We are talking about it. It's kind of more of the buzz. Like, oh yeah, athletes have mental health concerns too, which like, duh. But I think it takes time to trickle into individuals. And, and their patterns and their choices to seek out support because, you know, it's okay. Sometimes I think like with elite athletes, it's okay that so-and-so has struggled because, and now they're better. And I think that's the story we hear a lot is not like, which I mean, appropriately so when we're struggling, it's not always something we're comfortable discussing out loud. Um, but it's not like we see someone struggling. We see like, oh yeah, I struggled with an eating disorder and now I'm recovered. Versus like, I, like life is hard. I'm still struggling. So a lot of times people have to hit that rock, their rock bottom, which looks different for everyone in order to be a catalyst for wanting to do something differently. Um, because who wants to change unless they're forced to? Yeah, absolutely. When it comes to the narratives we tell ourselves and all these stories that we get in our heads, how, how much of it is like, are some of these narratives isolated to just a performance and training life and some isolated to, to personal family life or are all these narratives really interconnected? It is less common to see it just showing up in one area. Generally speaking, they're going to show up whenever we feel vulnerable or um, incompetent, and I use the word incompetently kind of loosely. So like if we don't perform our best, and that could be at work, that could be at school, that could be in our family life, like how we interact. That's anytime we 
at a judgment statement generally is when a narrative pops up. Um, and I guess to explain what a narrative is to the people listening into the podcast, a narrative is a story that you create for yourself or a story that someone else has created for you and you have then adopted and use it as your own. What sorts of things in our lives cause us to create these stories that we tell ourselves? There's so, I mean, that's such a great question. I mean, so many things could be a, a reason that we develop a narrative. I mean, generally speaking, I don't see when people come to me, their narratives are not usually one that highlights strengths. Usually the narrative highlights weakness. I mean, it could be um, the traumas that you've experienced in the past, or it could be something someone has told you time and time again. Um, it could, and it can, it doesn't have to be like this huge thing. Uh, so traumas can be categorized in two different ways. So there's big T traumas and little T traumas. And like big T traumas would be like car accidents, abuse, um, natural disaster, you know, like something that is very jarring. Little T traumas can be like things that happen to you over and over again, or like something small that is impactful, but maybe you don't realize that it's going to bother you. Um, so like a little T trauma could be watching someone choke, but be okay. So some people would experience that and be like, oh, the person's fine and go on. There's other people who would experience that and like not want to go to the same restaurant and it could be very traumatic for them. And then, so like there are all these little opportunities to create narratives and then confirm them. I mean, we do it like in silly ways too. Like, um, you know, like it's raining every time we go visit a certain place. And so then we're like, yeah, man, like what bad luck I have. It's always raining when I go here. And then, you know, like it's, and then you're like, oh, look, I went to this other place and it's raining again. It's all my fault. You know, like you just can find these ways to confirm that things are fitting together and somehow it's connected to you. Why do you think it is that you said it and I was already thinking it too, that most of the stories we tell ourselves are these negative stories. Why do you think we latch onto all these negative stories and not like a positive, like I'm the best ever story, even though, even that, though that might not be true. So there are a couple of reasons that come to my mind. And the first thing is, is that, so we are all products of our environment. And so if you look at how each person is raised, Generally speaking, we, like, if you look at the history of the United States and other areas, like, we have been raised by parents who have been impacted by specific things. And so let's say, for example, your parents were raised during the Great Depression. And so they were trained at a very young age to be prepared for something bad to happen. Because, you know, if, if you're being raised in the Great Depression, you're going to be fearful of a stock market crash and, you know, you're going to take things very, very seriously. And so then they most likely raise their kids in a society that is fearful and kind of like wants you to do the best that you can. And so then mistakes are become a really negative thing. 
And so a lot of times what we look at is like the way we are raised is to highlight negative and also to highlight positive outcomes in the way of like um, specific accomplishments. So we don't often in society like highlight like someone fails and we're like, good job for trying. We're like, can you believe that person failed? Like we're punishing you. So that's one thing. And then the second thing is there is this evolutionary bias um, that some social scientists have created this theory that our brains are actually more likely to highlight the negative beliefs and pay more attention to that in order to protect ourselves. Because again, kind of going back to our ancestors, in order to be safe, they had to be able to predict all of the bad things that could occur. So certain parts of our brains are just more pre-exposed um, or predetermined to highlight those negative um, characteristics or stories more than positive. Okay, that's interesting. So my guess it's a combination of both those things. <laughs> I'll go with it. <laughs> When it comes to training, you mentioned in the beginning that we separate ourselves or we try to create these or look for answers in order to separate ourselves from these things that happen due to fears. How does that impact that want to separate ourselves from things that cause fear? How does that impact us with our training and when things happen that we might not view as a positive thing during our training or during our performances? So, I mean, I think these, these questions are just like so spot on for most of us athletes and how we focus and look at our overall cycles of training and, and then respond to them. So for a lot of athletes, when something goes wrong, we then perceive it as a failure or um, let it define that entire training cycle. So if I have one interval, let's say, that goes bad, rather than using it as a way to practice resiliency and recovering, it, it mentally recovering, I then let it dictate the rest of my workout. So, so like I hear this from athletes all the time. Well, you know, I had one that I didn't hit my time, and so why keep trying? Or I had one that was like really off, so the whole workout was a failure. And our brains just kind of narrow in and look at that and then create a story, essentially, that we're not accomplishing what we need to be doing. And then we can create these fears. And so workouts become really, really stressful. And we get anxious before a workout. And we're not even just, we're not even talking about races yet. This is just like, you know, the meat and potatoes of training. So, you know, for a lot of athletes, what I have them try to do is look at it as practice. Like not only is a workout practice physically, it's also a mental practice of, I don't want my athletes workouts going well every single time. Because if you have amazing workouts, then how are you going to be prepared for a race when something will go wrong? Like we're human, things go wrong. And if we haven't been practicing what to do, then you know, we're, it's going to just take us out at the knees. How do you work or what do you, maybe how is the right word? How do you work with people to 
get past those fears or those things that develop, like maybe everyone, every time someone gets to an obstacle or, you know, the first couple of times that they've done an obstacle, they failed every single time. So now it's, they are already in their heads that they're going to fail an obstacle that they can't do it even before even getting to it. So how do you work with people to get past that? First, it's like, yeah, if you think you're going to fail it, you're totally right. Like you a hundred percent. And I say this to my runners and athletes all the time, like don't count yourself out before you get to the starting line. Because if you go to the starting line telling yourself this narrative, you will 100% make that happen. So what the, I kind of look at it as in steps. And the first step that I encourage athletes to do is to look and acknowledge when they're thinking it. And so how often is it infiltrating their thoughts? And then identify like, what is the thought? So you know, we may see them just failing at the obstacle, but the thought behind that could be really, really intense. Like perhaps they're not just scared of failing the obstacle, they're scared of falling. Or they're, you know, so first I want to identify like how often it's happening, what it's being said, and then like what outcome they're making from whatever is being said. And then we kind of like debunk it. So if let's say it's an obstacle and they're afraid of falling, we'll talk about like what happens if you fall, like what's worst case scenario. And we play that out. And then we talk about other options. And then we talk about like doing it in steps to help show positive improvements. So instead of like if someone I'm thinking about if I'm an obstacle course, let's say if they always fall on the third bar, I might have them do like go to two each time for like five times. And then on the sixth time, I'm like, all right, get to the third and stop and fall. And then we'll try again. And I want you to get to the fourth and fall. And so we kind of like practice it. And while they're practicing it, telling themselves a, a different narrative. Why? So that will be, that would be like a quick version of what I would have them do physically. And then what I would have them do before is start to visualize a different scenario before they even get to the obstacle, like in their home, in their safety of their home, using all five of their senses and visualizing an outcome that was one of success. Now let's take a quick break to talk about Equip Foods. Equip Foods is a supplement line, but what I really love about them is their products are made with 100% real food products. There's no fillers, there's no chemicals, there's nothing artificial in it. So everything that you are putting into your body when you consume their products is good for you. And they don't just have the normal protein and pre-workout type supplements. They also have products for decreasing inflammation, for joint health, for circulation, for all sorts of things that just help you be an overall healthier person. So go check out everything Equip Foods has to offer at equip, E-Q-U-I-P, foods.com. And at checkout, if you use code F-I-X-15, that is F-I-X-1-5, you can save 15% on your order. 
You can also get a link to Equip Foods and all my other partners at getyourfixpt.com slash partners. And now let's get back to our conversation. Let's take it one step further. Every, like people have been injured. Fear of re-injury is a big legit thing. Totally. So taking it one step further, past the stories that we tell ourselves coming back off of injury, how do you break someone past that fear of re-injury and get them back to being able to feel comfortable doing everything again so they're not hesitant? Yeah, because that's such a mind jungle when, you know, the hesitancy is more likely to actually get you injured. Absolutely. Um, and a lot of times what happens is we actually heal quick, quicker physically than we do emotionally. Um, and it's like that invisible scar that we don't necessarily want to help heal because physically on the outside we look okay. And so, again, it's like small, it's the small steps to improve mastery. So I use mastery kind of lightly because we're humans and we're never really going to master anything, but to build that confidence. So, well, if someone comes to me, I mean, generally people are coming to me while they're injured and we're starting to work on that visualization while they're doing the physical therapy. So they can start to visualize it not being a weakness and it being a strength. And they're actually determining that like, the, how do I explain this? Um, that we can recreate the narrative of what has happened through our memories. And so a lot of times, like our memories about being injured are re, like impact our ability to move forward. And so if we think of it more, you know, in our control, And like we think about our, let's say you hurt your ankle, like our ankle being strong and like planting and being more stable, then that, those pathways start to get built in our memory. And then that starts to impact our confidence. And so the visualization is the one piece. It is so impactful. And then the secondary piece as a coach, it's like step-by-step. We can't... we can't expect, and we can also help the athlete realize that you're not at first going to be the same person you were before you got injured, and that's okay. You can come back stronger, but we also have to acknowledge that like this did happen, and so we need to build your confidence as you build your strength. So yeah, and also like our, we may get injured again, and we will be okay if we do. Like not every injury is going to result in the same catastrophic event. And so like talking about those worst fears, I think a lot of times as coaches, we're like, that won't happen again. Like you'll be fine. Versus like having a conversation and being like, let's talk about that. What does that look like for you? How often do you work in conjunction with the therapist to kind of help people overcome this mental battle? And I'm thinking more of the like with pain science, so much of some of this chronic pain or residual pain is in the brain and is caused by, by things that we're holding on to. So how much do you work with the, 
with the therapist in conjunction with them to help them overcome what's going on in their head to break past some of these fears that might be causing this pain to remain um, with their injury. So I actually, I would love to work more with physical therapists and in conjunction. Um, And I, I, right now I would say that people refer to me and that I don't have a lot of like, I would love to be able to provide those trainings for physical therapists and for um, any, you know, I think in the Western culture, we do a disservice because we look at the body and brain as being separate. Mm -hmm. And a lot of our healing process is like, you have to see this doctor, you have to see this doctor, you have to see this doctor. And then it's like, well, we only have time and energy to see one doctor. And so we don't, you know, like we separate it as a society when it's really supposed to be more combined as healing. So I think that that's, I wish I had the opportunity to do that type of work more. I think it would be really helpful. Yeah. And it's, unfortunately, it is the way our system is. We're a very reactive mm-hmm. system rather than a preventative. And not that you can prevent traumatic injuries, like things happen, but as a whole, it is, everything is very separate. There's really no communication. It's just a very reactive. I mean, up until, I mean, I don't know how it is in your area, but for a while, for the longest time, like we would have to get referrals before we could go see physical therapists. And so for insurance to cover it, so someone would need an injury before they could do proactive work, which like, I mean, just kind of, we are a reactive system. That's just kind of the way we are, we were built. Hopefully, you know, in this new, (laughs) new awakening, maybe we will be able to prioritize health, overall health and wellness, which looks at mental wellness as being like a core component of health. Yeah. You know, I uh, can't remember who I was talking to several years ago, but it made a really good point. That's like, we are requested to go to our dentist twice a year for just routine checkups to make sure everything's good. Like, why aren't we doing that with mental health, with musculoskeletal system? Like, totally. why are we just doing this with like one, maybe two systems if you go to your doctor for a physical every year? Like, it, it's really interesting. And also expecting certain providers to be able to support people in ways that they're not trained. Yeah. So, you know, when I used to just work within the mental health system, something that shocked me was like primary care doctors are the number one people that find out about like domestic violence and they are not specifically trained in how to deal with domestic violence. And so here they, and suicide. So here they are asking these questions as, as a frontliner, but they don't have that specific training to know what to do. And so then it becomes like this jarring event for both people of not knowing those, not being trained. And, and when people ask me specifically about injuries, same thing. I'm like, I don't know the physical component. Like I have no idea. Go see a PT. (laughs) (laughs) Your knee hurts. It, let's check it out. Let's go, let's see, get someone on board that knows what they're talking about before, you know, I can support you emotionally and mentally through that. Yeah. 
And yeah, it's just interesting. Like general practitioners are kind of ex- thought to know everything or expected to know everything. And cause same thing, like nutrition injuries, like pain issues, they just kind of throw darts at it, hoping something's going to help rather than like directly referring them a lot. And it's really interesting. You know, I, I had a supervisor once many years ago. And I, so when I started my mental health career, I worked on a mobile crisis team. And what that looks like is you go to people's, you're a part of um, the emergency psychiatric room, but you go to people's homes to, you either identify like this person needs to be in the hospital and we're going to facilitate that or they're okay in their home. The, the overall arching goal is to keep down numbers in the emergency room and increase like safety so that people who are at risk are, are like streamlined into the hospital essentially. Um, so I, I'm trying to remember where I was going with that. Oh, I remember. Okay. So I had this like this, um, profound mentor who told me once like because I had I went to the house of the mayor and his wife and she was really really mentally ill and they had asked me a question and I didn't know the answer and I remember being like this kid a couple years out of grad school being like oh my god like I should know this I don't know what do I do and the mentor was like it's okay not to know things like you can have some type of like go-to response that's like, let me check with my supervisor. And that has been like one of the most um, freeing lessons that I've learned of like, yeah, even experts sometimes have to talk to people and like check in and make sure that they're following all like all the appropriate things that need to happen beforehand. Um, And I, you know, as a society, that's, you know, that's another narrative that's really frowned upon. Like if you have to ask for help, you will, you are not competent or whatever. And I'm, you know, I think it's awesome that we can say, like we can admit like, Hey, yeah, sometimes I'm just as new to this information as you are. Let's see, let's work together and figure out the best option. Yeah, I I mean, I definitely felt early on in my career that I needed to know everything. And now it's like, I own it. If I don't, it's like, I'll look, I'll either reach out to my colleague who knows it, or I'll look up the information. I'll like, I can find it. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. It's kind of freeing though, to be like, yeah, I love doing the research and I'll look it up. And if I'm not competent or not as knowledgeable in it, then I'll refer you to someone who understands it better. Yeah, absolutely. When we're looking at overall mental health, these narratives we tell ourselves, like pretty much anyone listening to this, because since every human deals with these narratives, this relates to everybody listening to this. Um, When we get into, even without working with a professional, when we get into these situations where we're just telling ourselves these stories, are there any just like simple tricks we can use in order to kind of help break us out of that, that fear, that story that we're telling ourselves and allow us to like get back to what we were doing? I think the pause is a really effective way to acknowledge it and not attach to it. So being more in a 
of an observer of your thoughts rather than taking your thoughts as being fact. It, it's challenging to do the reframe work without support from someone outside of your own brain because we're so like a lot of times what happens is that we don't even realize it's a narrative because it's been our truth for so long. Um, like I have a lot of athletes that are convinced they're slow on hills. Like, well, hills are hard. Like we're all slower on hills because we're working harder. You should be slower on hills. Um, but that narrative is so impactful that they don't even realize that that statement has become their truth. So to just kind of acknowledge it is really that first step to then being able to decide if we want that to be our reality. And then like the next step people can do on their own is look to like a more helpful statement, which is like hill running is hard. So we could do something really, really small change in our brain, which is I am slow on hills to I'm going to pause. I'm going to acknowledge and observe like, I'm being kind of judgy. And then I can go to a statement such as like hill running is really hard, which doesn't make me a failure. It just kind of presents the facts of like, this is hard. A lot of times what happens is people think reframing is this magical statement of everything's great and I'm not in pain and you know, this is easy. And I'm a big believer of reframing being very logical and, and makes sense to your brain. So for me, like I'm never going to tell myself when I'm visualizing before a workout, I'm going to go run a four minute mile. That's not my strength. There's no way I'm going to go run a four minute mile. I, it's never going to happen. And I'm okay with that. Like, that's just my reality. Could I drop? 10 seconds off my mile time if I train really hard for it? Sure. You know, that, that is more realistic. And so if I was visualizing and working on that narrative, I would take it from, I'm going to do my best and I believe that I can like drop five seconds off my time. So for me, it has to be a realistic reframe. That's a really great tip. And, and I love just the acknowledgement and the concept around thoughts. Cause something I've learned a couple of years ago when I started working with a lot of my own struggles was that those thoughts are just thoughts that they aren't us. And that it's a matter of acknowledging them and then doing something with it. Yeah. So often we think thoughts are facts. It kind of goes to like eat, if you are in a bad mood, that doesn't make you a bad person. You're just having a moment. And I guess another important thing too is like we have emotions for a reason. It's like you don't have to have a perfect, great day every single day. We don't have to be in a good mood every single day that we're going to have these emotions. But having, like you said earlier, having a bad workout doesn't make you a bad athlete. And just having those negative emotions at times doesn't make you a negative person. It's just dealing with life. Yeah. And, and it, oftentimes society wants to protect us from having up and down emotions, which is fascinating to me because if we don't experience realistic highs and lows, like I'm not, I don't want people to feel like super, super high and then super, super low, but that, the opposite 
like, what is that word? Like the law of opposites. Like if you don't feel sadness, you're also really, truly not going to understand happiness. Mm -hmm. So we have to experience both. However, society really, really prompts us towards only experiencing one. Like sadness is a bad thing or, you know, anger is a bad thing. And, and I, it's information. Emotions are, are helpful and they're healthy and like it is life is hard. So yeah, I, I like to kind of normalize that like <laughs> emotions are good. Like we want to feel them. If we're not feeling them, then we're either not acknowledging them or we're probably not alive. <laughs> like, they just happen, you know? <laughs> I like how you put that though, that it's just information because it is really true. It's just the in, kind of that input output that we're experiencing. Yeah. That's cool. I, I, you know, I think about it as like, as a kid and kind of the information that we're provided to as kids and then how that's reiterated, like, um, how many times like parents are like, don't cry or don't be sad, even though your doll broke. And again, it's like out of compassion and kindness of like, yeah, it's fine. Like whatever, get over it. But at the same time, it's like that reinforcement of you don't get to be sad. You know, you know, like, you need to be like how emotions should not be present or, you know, I love this. Um, I remember being an athlete and my coach like yelling at me, pain is weakness, leaving your body. And now I'm like, what the fuck? Oh, sorry. <laughs> what does that mean? Pain is weakness, leaving your body. Like, I don't, I don't even understand. Like I am, I've done some crazy long adventures and I am all for suffering. Like I suffer hard and I train hard, but something about pain is weakness leaving the body. Like, I don't know how that got to be a, a something that like we tell kids now, like it's a really crazy statement. That's awesome. I never thought about that before, but yes. (laughs) Well, Danielle, if someone wants more information on what you do or just has more questions about things or maybe needs help, where can they find you? So Probably the easiest way is through my email, and that is D-A-N-I-E-L-L-E-R-S-N-Y-D-E-R at gmail.com. And I also have a website, um, which is, I have to, <laughs> that guy, so, okay, it's H-T-T-P-S and innerdriveathlete.com. Perfect. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, this was really fun to kind of chat about the things that are so, I think, important for athletes to consider. Um, I appreciate you bringing it to the front of the room. Yeah, absolutely. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation today. And before we close out, I want to share with you a program I have called Resilient Shoulders. As OCR athletes, Shoulder issues are very common. And if you are like most athletes, you use the lacrosse ball, you stretch, you do all of these things to try to improve the mobility of the shoulders. And yet you continue to have pain. Many times it's because the right things are not being done to really solve those problems, those underlying issues. And that's why I created Resilient Shoulders. Resilient Shoulders is an online platform 
that gives you the necessary things to do to resolve your shoulder issues, as well as minimize the risk of more issues happening in the future. So head over to getyourfixpt.com courses to check out the Resilient Shoulder course, as well as my other online programs. And once again, thank you so much for listening today. I really hope you enjoyed it. And now let's go out and be highly functional.